Hi, this is Mike Zito, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I see you post videos on on Facebook of you just noodling on the guitar. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm curious, not being a player, when you do that... And this, this applies not only for that, it could be for any solo that you do. But what goes through your mind when you're sitting there just noodling away? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, I, um, I'm, a, I'm a noodler at heart. Uh, I came up in a music store in, in a, you know, an old school guitar shop that was in South St. Louis that uh, you know, I worked. It was in my neighborhood my entire life. It was, it was opened the, the year I was born. They opened that guitar shop. So I was there all as a kid and I worked there for 10 years. And, um, you know, you're there for 10 hours a day, six days a week. And the thing to do is to noodle, <laughs> to sit and play guitar all day and have it in your hand. And um, so, um, one, I, en I enjoy just, I mean, sometimes I, I just enjoy, I mean, I don't know if I'm even thinking about what I'm doing. I think I just, I enjoy the comfortable feeling that I'm holding my guitar and I'm just, that's probably the, the, I always enjoy playing. That's probably the most enjoyable time where I'm just like, oh, I'm just having fun. Like I was when I was a kid, like, oh, I just want to plug the guitar in and just, I'm not really practicing, <laughs> not really getting anything done. I'm not really playing music at all. You know, my dad would constantly yell, play a song. <laughs> Don't you know any songs? Play music. Because all he heard was. Blah, 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 blah. Um, but ironically, you mentioned that I do it online. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I would have ever even thought about that. But this year being home with the quarantine, uh, I noticed for the first time that um like I'm way behind on the world. Like apparently I've gotten old and the world's moved on because um, people don't get in vans much and drive around the world and go play music for people anymore. Like it's, it's not really what happens in the real world. People play music on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And um, like, I didn't know that. I mean, I, I knew it, but I guess I just didn't realize to the extent. And what I noticed was um, a lot of my friends, uh, like, say, a Joe Bonamassa, you know, I he's just sitting there playing guitar for like a minute. And then it has like, you know, because he's very famous, but it has thousands and thousands and thousands of views and people commenting. And um, and I was like, oh, OK, well, I can do that. Like, that's what I like to do. So. Um, somebody that works with me with social media said, you know, you should just every day put, put your phone up and do your jamming. So what's going through my head is, yeah. um, ironically, if, if I'm doing it with no camera on nothing, like it's almost like therapy, like a mindless kind of enjoyment. Um, 
But is it is it just, nothing thinking about the music, or is it nothing you might be thinking about? What am I going to have for dinner? Noodle, noodle, noodle. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if if it's going to be like, oh, I'm going to write a song, or I'm going to learn something. Well, now my thought process is like literally pulled into the guitar. Um, whereas, yeah, like I may um, not even plug the guitar in and just do that and watch TV, or do it really quietly. And watch a, you know, if I'm in the hotel room, watch it on a show on my computer or, or yeah, think about what are we doing later? Or, um, you know, it's, it's the equal of say, taking a walk and, uh, it just kind of maybe gets my head together about, you know, what, what are we doing later? What's going on? What do I have to do today? Um, I always tell people, and I still do, I, when I worked at the music store, we were next to a, a golf pro shop Right. later, the store moved out to a, a uh, like a nicer neighborhood <laughs> with people that had money and and there was this golf shop and so we got this uh, clientele that i i wasn't used to doctors lawyers professional people and they would come in and we started to carry more expensive guitars and they would look at the guitar oh let me see that guitar you know like a maybe a three thousand dollar guitar something that's very seemed very expensive it, it is very expensive um and then they would kind of ham and haw and think about it. And they go, well, I don't know. And I'd say, well, you know, um, they go, well, I'm just not very good at guitar anymore. I, you know, I used to play. And I go, well, you know, um, are you good at golf? Like, no, not at all. <laughs> but but you play, you know, how, how much how much was your last, uh, you know, the, the last uh, putter or your last iron or your last, you know, yeah. driver that you bought? You know, think about that. I mean, you spent, they spent all this money and they, and they said, you know, it's just for fun. You do it for therapy. Well, I would tell them that's exactly the same thing. And you can play guitar, rain or shine. And I sold a lot of guitars that way. Like, Hey, it's therapy, you know? Um, so people will say, they'll come talk to me. Oh, I play guitar. Oh, not like you. I just play for fun. And I say, Hey man, I play for fun too. I'm like, that's mainly what I do is, <laughs> is play for fun. And then there's this other thing like, oh yeah, I got to go like make some money or figure out a way that people will listen to me play guitar, which is fun also, right. but it is a job. That's like another thing. So I know I went on a tangent there, but I told you I, I have no problem talking. <laughs> okay. So when you're noodling and you're not thinking about what you're going to do next, in terms of what you're going to play next, but right. you're doing stuff, but you're not thinking about it. How different is right. that from you being on stage and going into solo? Like, do you ever think, think about what you do? That's, that's a good question. And, and that's part of it is, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's just like life. It's like, uh, I want to, I don't want to overanalyze what I'm doing when I'm on stage ever. And I think that if I get some noodling in during the day and I play, uh, my hands feel good and hopefully I can just kind of be loose and not think too much about what I, my hands are doing, like specifically like, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this. Um, if I can get away from that thought process, then I'm looking at the audience and I'm letting their energy kind of um, 
maybe decide what I'm going to do next. And I'm listening to the band. And how is the band playing? And is the drummer excited? Is he, you know, what's going on? Um, that's where that's where I want to be musically. Uh, less like worried about the details of exactly where my finger goes. And did I play this lick to its perfection or something? And more like, is my playing in tune with the band and the energy in the room? Am I trying to lift the room? Am I trying to get their attention? Am I trying to draw them in? Um, so it's, 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 to me, it's like life. It's like, uh, I can't walk around and stare at the ground and, and watch my every step, but I definitely need to know where I'm going <laughs> like a little bit, you know? So, um, it's, it's probably me noodling probably helps me to not overanalyze what I'm going to be doing later on stage. Cause that's not, to me, that's not fun at all. And I don't think to me, the audience always wants to see me, uh, having joy. Right. Like they're not interested in me being, you know, the worst thing you want to see is some guy on stage getting frustrated and, and not, you know, I've done that before, you know, early in sobriety, you know, being just so frustrated with myself or the band or didn't sound the way I want it to or whatever kind of selfish, self-centered things there are there. You know, the, the audience wants to see me uh, happy. When they see musicians happy, you know, it makes them happy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's it. They're probably similar, I, I hope. Hopefully I'm not thinking so much about what I'm playing and I'm listening to the music and I'm kind of going along for the ride. You know, I, I want to be in amazement with the audience as well. I, I want to be witness. Like usually when I'm in that state of mind, like things may happen and I'll go, Ooh, I don't even know how to do that. What was that? Like, where'd that come from? You know? uh, <laughs> and like how do I do it again? Wilbert. Yeah. I don't know how to do that again. I, I want to, that's what I want. I want to do the same thing. So uh, try to be open. And um, I always think of the Almond Brothers. Like that's my favorite. That's kind of my like. That's a good. You know they all they're like a jazz band. Like mm -hmm. they're not a total jam band. They're not the Grateful Dead. They have like this outline. They have like an intro, and a middle, and an ending. They know how they're going to get in and out. But then there's these parts in there where they're like, eh. Let's see what happens. It's interesting yeah. you mentioned them because this week or last week I purchased the um, Live at the Fillmore concerts. So it's like six or seven concerts. Oh, wonderful. And it's it's like reasonably cheap on iTunes. So it's like $16 for 60 songs or whatever. But it's like six different concerts. And, and you hear yeah. many of the same songs played over and over again, but never the same way. And I'm right. so in, you know, I love that album. I mean, I've always loved the Live at the Fillmore. And I know those songs pretty well, but to hear it played differently, but within the same week, <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, 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 it, it is. It, and it's it's amazing after all of the years of, you know, that is a record that, that was like uh, just, you know, before my time, but I... I was so lucky I worked at this guitar shop and, and I was, you know, 18 and everyone else was uh, 40, you know, like real, I thought they were like really old, you know, like, like 
40 years old or something. And so, you know, I couldn't listen to my records. We could only listen to, there was a five CD changer. And, and two of the five CDs were live at the Fillmore, you know, like the original album that was released. Right. And so I was just told, it was like beat over the head, like, that's good music. That's, that's what good music sounds like. That's good music, like just over and over and over. And later, if there was all that mystery back then. You know, we didn't have the internet. You didn't mm -hmm. have, like you say, you didn't have all these concerts. You just had this, this is the show. So that's what they put on there. Right. And then later you find out like uh, they were doing several nights. They weren't even the headliner. Like they were like the middle act. And Johnny Winter was, I think Johnny Winter was the closer at those hmm. shows. Wow. Those are Bill Graham shows. Yeah. Um, and, and then I heard some of the recordings later and I thought, well, that's not the same way, you know, or, or it almost, it doesn't sound like a mistake, but it sounds like they were trying something else or they didn't get there or, you know, um, but I listened to that record for so long. I just thought, so Dwayne Allman never plays a wrong note. He is the greatest guitar player ever. <laughs> And then I go, oh, no, that's just the one they put out, like, because it was really good. You know, of course he, you know, he's going for it. Like, uh, but I didn't know that back then. It was, uh, it's quite different, you know, these days to have, and I don't know if it's good or not. Partly it's good to have all that information. And I also kind of miss the idea that I didn't used to know what the band looked like or, right, you know, uh, I mean, you used to buy records. You didn't even know who they were. It was like a drawing or like a, a Blue Oyster Cult record. It looked like they were aliens. Like, <laughs> who's the band? Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Um, how did you get into the guitar? How did that start? Um, well, uh, no one in my family played music at all, ever. And uh, we were pretty, you know, poor. I, di I didn't know it then. Um I mean, we had a good life, but and my dad worked. He was he worked at Anheuser Busch, right, St. Louis for like thirty eight years, and um, and they were he was really a lot older than me. He was almost fifty when I was born, so I was born in nineteen seventy. He was born in nineteen twenty two, so we were like really different people. He was like being raised by like a grandparent, so he was in World War Two and listened to big band music and everyone was older than me. So I was kind of like an only child that lived with grandparents. Um, Cause my brother's like 18 years older than me. My sister's 16 years older. Um, wow. So I only listened to my dad's records is what I was getting at. They were all kind of older and out of the house in them. So the first, you know, five or six years, all I heard was Frank Sinatra and Dizzy Gillespie and um, Dean Martin just whatever my dad listened to. And I, I loved it. Uh, I still do. So, but there's not really guitar. <laughs> there's not much guitar on any of that. Um, I saw the Jackson five on TV when I was five or six and that I kept singing and dancing and was like really turned on when I saw little Michael Jackson, you know, out there like rocking. So I started singing in talent shows when I was four and five and six. Um, you know, getting in front of people. I wanted to get in front of people and like sing and, and do stuff. 
So, um, but the guitar didn't happen until 1978. And uh, I was still seven and it was like the end of the summer. And that that year Van Halen, their, their first album came out early in 78. And uh, so I was at a friend's house up the streets and he had an older brother and the older brother was like maybe 10 or 11 and was really into music and records and rock and roll. He was kind of the only guy around that was like what I would think of as a, a older brother, like a guy that's a couple years older, right? kind of knows some cool stuff, you know, and um, I went upstairs and used their bathroom and I came out and I heard, well, it was, it was eruption by Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. I just heard, and I, I thought it was like Star Wars, like like a spaceship or something. I was like, what? You know, I was like a little kid. Like, what is that? And I went in, and the record was on. He wasn't in there, and I was just listening. And it was mesmerizing. Like, it was like colorful and like it just. I don't know. It sounded like Star Wars. That's the only thing I could think of. Mm-hmm. And he came in and was like, "What are you doing in my room?" And I said, "What? Like, what is that?" He said, "It's Van Halen." And I was like. What, what, what is that? He said, it's guitar. It's electric guitar. I was like, guitar? And he goes, yeah. And he like showed me the cover, you know. And I was like, yeah, one of the, I remember somebody like Jackson 5 had, didn't sound like that. You know, like, I just freaked out. I ran home. I was like, hey, so I need, I need a guitar. Like, can we go? And then they, I found out we had this music store, you know three blocks away. So I started going up there and staring in the window. So I got a guitar that year for, I got a record player. That was a good year. I got a little (laughs) record player, like a Snoopy record player. And I got a harmony student guitar for Christmas. that came with a little amplifier and a how to play guitar book. And um, like I said, no one knew how to play guitar. We didn't have any money for lessons. Um, So I got that guitar and, and I just, and I owned it. Until I was 14, and I mean, I just played it every day, completely out of tune. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. I just beat on it and made noise on it and turned records up loud and, like, hit it and sang and tried to act like I was, you know, doing something. Right. And uh, I, I still do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was it. I mean, I, I don't know what it was about it. It just... It, just, uh, and I'm going to be honest, uh, I mean, I love blues and I love all kinds of music and um, I cannot play like Eddie Van Halen, but to this day, uh, I have no, that is my favorite all time electric guitar player in the history of the whole world. I wouldn't even play guitar if it wasn't for him. Uh, right. It was something so uh, childlike and fun about his guitar playing. You know, he's like a modern Chuck Berry. Like there was just so much fun that was coming out of this guitar, like humor and wackiness and and virtuosity. And, and uh, it's just that's all I listened to. Uh, and I never realized that, you know. But but they people now will say, but he was very influenced by blues and Clapton and, and a lot of their songs. They kind of have some of these songs have these bluesy 
And he's just playing pentatonic kind of sped up blues licks, you know. Um, so that was it. And then I got in high school and met guys that for the first time, like I met kids my age that played, that really knew how to play guitar, like knew how to tune it, knew how to play chords, that had taken lessons and they had a band. And I wanted to join the band and they, I found out like, they were like, yeah, you don't know how to play guitar. Like you're, you're not even terrible. Like you literally don't know how to play guitar. <laughs> it's not tuned right. It's, but I could sing and they needed a singer. So I became a singer and, and I would just bring my guitar and then the, you know, the kid that played guitar would show me stuff and I'd watch him and, you know, by the end of high school, I had gotten a few guitar lessons and sang in this band and I could like, you know, by, by the time I was 18, I could play chords and licks and I was like getting there, like high school kind of, kind of got me going. How, how much did the, the, the no lessons just pretend like you're playing for, I don't know how long, years, months, I don't know. But, years. <laughs> okay. So how long, how did that have an effect on your playing? Like you probably had to unlearn some bad habits. Yeah, and it's it's still it's absolutely still that way, um, because I don't I don't have that um, background, you know, and and I and I used to. Um, there's a part of me that I can go there. I listened to a, I listened to an interview this past week with a wonderful guitar player Josh Smith. Mm -hmm. and, who's a, a, become a good friend of mine. He's just, you know, super talented guitar player and was a, like a young prodigy guitarist. And he was interviewing Julian Lodge. If you're, if you're not familiar, he's a, was another child prodigy jazz guitar player. He's right. just like a brilliant, amazing jazz musician that I, I just listened to and it, it overwhelms me. His, his not just the guitar, his music, you know, and they were having this discussion and he was talking about, you know, studying with these jazz greats at the age of 12 and, and uh, graduating high school early and going to Berkeley and all that. And, and it just hits me over and over again, like, yeah, like you have nothing in common with these people. Like the only thing that we have in common is that we hold a guitar, like, where you are not like them and I'll never be like them. It doesn't matter how much I'm in awe, but I would always, you know, like, Oh, I wish I could be like that. I thought, man, there's no way. Like I don't have that. I have, do not have that background. I think that's one of the reasons I always liked Van Halen. He was self-taught and didn't know what he was doing. Kind of made this way. And, you know, I, I, I did have, I did get some good music lessons. I, I say music lessons when I was 18. So briefly, one, my very first ever professional guitar lesson that I paid for, <laughs> I was 14 and the guitar instructor was like 17. And um, he taught, you know, he was like, a, like everybody kind of knew him. You know, he was kind of a rock guitar player in town. His name is Richard Fortis, and uh, he was in a band around town, and people knew him. I took two guitar lessons with Rich, 
Rich is the guitar player in Guns N' Roses. He's been in the band for 20 years now. Wow. Um, like, he's in the band currently. Right. With Slash. So it's like Slash and my first guitar teacher. <laughs> wow. He's in the band, which is just a trip. And um, and we're, you know, great friends these days. And uh, there were people around St. Louis that are like world-class guitar players. You know? So another one that I got a, a guitar lesson from, he's been Jimmy Buffett's guitar player for 30 years. Um, and he's he lived in, you know, these guys lived in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, they had taken music lessons with a, a guy by the name of Duke Michelak. I'm going to say his name just in case he ever gets to hear this. And he was teaching music theory in his parents' basement. And it was a college credit if you went studied with him. And so these two really gifted guitar players, like they were like the big name guitar players at the time. And they had all studied under this guy, Duke. And um, so you had to get like on a waiting list. And it was, this was 1990. So, and it was like maybe $40 for uh, an hour or something. Like it was a lot of money. And, you know, I had to pay myself and, um, so I, I got on the waiting list and I got in and um, and for six months I took lessons with him and, and he never, he didn't play the guitar. So we took music lessons. He, he would um, show me how to play the major scale, like do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. Right. And, and then he had some music with a drum machine he, and, and he'd go, okay, I'm going to play this music and let's jam and I want you to play the scale, but don't play the scale like just use the notes in the scale and, right. and see if you can make up a melody and um, of course it's really you know difficult at first because you learn this pattern and, but that's all we did we just we just got together and he would tape the thing and then you could take the tape home and, and, uh, and so we went through um, the modes you know I remember like just all that stuff sounded so like what is that the modes. I don't know what it means. Oh my God. If I learn these modes, I'm going to be able to do like, I'm going to be Steve Vai or some, you know? And so we worked on this music and um, he was very encouraging and fun and happy. Hey, what's happening? You know, it's so exciting. And, uh, and like six months in, he goes, uh, we finished and he goes, Mike, I, I think that's it. Like, I think we're done. You know, he was like, you're, I was like, we're done. He goes, yeah, I think you got it. And I was like, I don't have anything. I don't even know what we're doing. I don't even know what these modes are. Like, And he goes, no, no, you you got it. I think you just need to go play. Like, you have a real feel and a real, um, like a real natural feel. And, and you seem to have it all going for you. You need to go and play. It'll all work out. Trust me, I... He goes, if you learn any more, I think we're going to mess it up. And I, of course, at the time, I was like kind of devastated. Like, wow, okay. So I guess this guy didn't like me. <laughs> he, doesn't wanna, he doesn't want me to give him my money anymore. And um, and so for I just went and played. Played in cover bands and bar bands and country bands and blues bands and rock bands. and You know, bands that made $50 a night, played four hours a night, played five nights a week. And I, I just did that for years and years and years years and years and by the time I was 25 
one day it kind of hit me. I was like, wow, he's right. Like, I, I get it. Like, I know, I get it. It made sense. Um, not everything, but like everything I needed to know for what I wanted to do. So I always thank him for not, um, the, the thing I learned the most back then was if I learned everything I learned, you have to forget when you go play. And, um, if the more you learn, the more you have to forget, or you are going to do that constant thinking about every detail. And that's not always music, right? You know, it's certainly not like maybe the music that I want to play or enjoy. So, um, I still have bad habits and um, like technique is not correct. You know, it's, it's like, my, it's not right. I, I practice, I watch, I still watch like instructional, you know, I teach instructional courses, which I think is ridiculous because <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then I watch them and I go like, why would anybody watch me? Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so I'm always trying to work on my, I'm still, you know, but I think at 50 years old, I finally realized like it is just, yeah, it has attributed to the way I play. So I cannot play like Julian Lodge, but, uh, but I don't think he can play like me either, but he probably doesn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably want to play like him, but I don't think he wants to play like <laughs> me at all. But, you know, you're one hell of a guitar player as well. I mean... Well, thank you. I'm, I'm not asking for a, a pat on no, the No, no, I, I realize that. I think I'm, I'm, I'm good at what I do, and, and I like what I do. And, and, and people, you know, people like what I do, um, you know, and I think part of it is that I am playing live, and, and it's emotional, and it's um, from the heart, and I'm playing what I feel. And all of my heroes, that's exactly how they play, you know. And it's one of the reasons I gravitated to the blues was it seemed like I would listen to those records, like B.B. King, Live at the Regal. And they had different versions of the same song, like you were talking about the Almond Brothers. Mm -hmm. And I would listen and go, so he's not playing the same solo. Like, that's different solo than the first version earlier and i started to early on realize like yeah they're improvising you know he's kind of he's got a bag he's drawn from but he's kind of playing what he feels in the moment and i was and because i just could not learn the songs i i couldn't i wasn't good at learning things note for note i couldn't figure out what the guys were playing it always kept me from getting good gigs and good bands because I, I couldn't do that. I would just play whatever the hell I wanted. So I just started making my own band and doing things my way. And I would learn the song my way and, and just do my own thing. And in the end, it's worked out to be a blessing in disguise because I, I used to hate the way I sound because I don't sound like anybody else when I played. And that's all I wanted to do was sound like someone. <laughs> someone famous on a record you know and now i realize like well you know you sound like you people would tell me i don't know why you bring out a different guitar every night it always sounds the same <laughs> when did you when did you think so, that you were going to be a musician 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, definitely some kind of entertainer from like, like I said, from a little kid, I was, my, my dad did work, like, like a, like a labor work job, like he was in the labor union and worked at the brewery and worked machinery in it. And, and my brother worked there. And, and like, I was definitely, I didn't go to college and I didn't have a chance to go to college or anything, but I was not going to do that. I hadn't, I was definitely not doing that job. I was, and I wanted to entertain and be in, on stage in one form or the other. And so I thought I would be an actor from the longest time as a kid and guitar was just like something I did for fun. But by the time end of high school rolled around, I was so into the guitar and I was meeting people that were like playing guitar for a living in St. Louis. And I hadn't met any, there was no actors that I met. There are not people living, making a living being an actor in St. Louis. There's not a lot of acting work. So it was like, yeah, I'll just do this music thing. Cause that seems like, you know, you could come about the work pretty easy, you know? And by the time I was 18, I was like in a professional band with 40 year old people um, learning to play 40 songs, you know, 10 songs a set, four sets a night. And um, that mentality is still in my head and it's going to be there forever. But it's it's kind of a trade, you know, like uh, I like I know how to do something. You know? did, did All you else ever, fails, I can work. Right. But did you ever doubt yourself? Um, not not on the lo like on the local level no like i i didn't have maybe as much natural talent as other people like i had friends that could that took a few lessons and could just play like new and, and they were way less interested than i was they were like yeah you know but i had i had this drive in me that really had nothing to do with the guitar had to do with like um, I want to be in front of people and I want to entertain like I like the idea of being an entertainer telling jokes singing acting dancing music um, and so I was not afraid to get in front of people and so that I never had a doubt like whatever it was I'll find a way to get in front of people and that was the easiest thing I didn't realize until I turned 18 that like Oh, every corner bar around this city, two or three nights a week has like a band, like some kind of entertainment. And right. I was like, well, I'm, I'll do that. <laughs> you know, like I can do that. You know, if these idiots can do it, I can certainly do it. You know, like they're not any better than me. And um, so I just learned the instrument and, and, uh, and that and put my focus on, okay, I'm gonna learn to play this instrument so I can get in front of these people. Because when I would get in front of them, they they liked it. There was something about me like they liked, even if I wasn't good yet. I remember guys coming to tell me like, hey man, you know, you're not, you're not playing in the right key. <laughs> like I can tell like you're not playing in the right key. So some of those notes don't sound right, but uh, you got something like you're gonna be good, you know? Like when I was really young, like right. there's something you got to, you know, you're, you got some, something going on. And so I just kept, 
I was lucky just to be at that music store for 10 years and to be around all of these amazing musicians and great blues artists. Big George Brock, who just passed away this year, was my hero, you know. And um, if you don't know, I mean, he was from Mississippi, was a, worked in, on a plantation, and moved to St. Louis and became a professional boxer. And, um, but always a harmonica player and a singer. And so I just knew him. He came in the store all the time, but later in life, he, be, he got his due and, you know, became famous in the, in the international blues, you know, world. And, uh, but I just hung out and watched these guys and talked to them and listened to them. And, um, that was my education. I got an education like no other being at that store. So dad and myself was never like, I didn't care if I, I don't know if I cared as much that if I was good or that you were better than me. It was like, oh yeah, but I'll go do it. Watch this. Like, like I was not, I don't know, man. I, I, I am not shy. And I, and I have never really been shy. So I would just get on stage and, let her rip and play every wrong note and have people yell at me on stage and tell me that sounds terrible. Don't do that again. <laughs> like that's how I learned, you know, but I, I just put it out there and just kept trying to do it. And so no, but I don't think I, I did. I did not have, there was not a, when you say doubt, my goal was not, I'm going to be famous. Watch this. I'm going to go be famous. My goal was I'm not working at that brewery. I'm not working there. Like I'm going to do something else. Like I'm, I'm going to work at this music store or I'm going to have some kind of a guitar. My, like, I'm not doing that work. That work sucks. Like, so that was the only the goal. You know, if I would have just played five nights a week in St. Louis, like guys did that for a living and still do and have done it all their lives. You know, they're not rich, but they make a living playing music in St. Louis. So that that was my goal. And, um, you know, I didn't, I don't, I, I never, ever thought I was going to be um, like some famous, like fame eluded me. And not until I met Walter Trout and I saw him or Tab Benoit, Tommy Castro, Joanna Connor. Um, Coco Montoya, people like in the 90s that started to make a name on a national scene right. and they weren't the they weren't the most famous and they started to come to St. Louis in the mid 90s and they were playing the same places I was already playing but I noticed there was a cover charge when they played and they had a CD for sale and they were not playing they were playing their own music they had written their own songs. And that's when I was like, well, what is this? Like, what are they doing? Where, where'd you, how'd you make this CD? Like, what is this? You know, what is Roof Records? What is Alligator Records? I've never heard of this. Like, what, what's going on? You know, I thought it was, if you were going to be on a record, it had to be, you know, Capital or Sony or RCA. Or, I didn't know about this, these other things. And, and that's when that door opened up. And I was noticing that these guys were traveling around in a van, <laughs> playing at all the blues clubs around the country and around the world. 
that was that's when my that's what that's the goal that's that was really my only goal then was mid 90s was like okay i'm doing that that what that walter trout guy is doing oh i'm doing that that's what i'm gonna do and certainly i doubted myself then probably still do (laughs) so because why um well then you know one uh i had been by the time i was you know, I made a CD when I was 28, made my first album because I had, you know, caught on to all this. I opened up for Walter Trout the first time and, you know, he was larger than life. It was not a local guy. He did play like a bit with the first time I opened up. It was a big room. He had like, uh, I don't know, five or six hundred people there. He had a song on the radio in St. Louis. We opened up, he had like, you know, I mean, it was like, okay, I, but I, I was really cocky back then. And I was also drinking and then I got into drugs and um, I had opportunities, you know, I had opportunities in the late nineties with Roof Records or with Alligator or uh, Blind Pig. And, but they all kind of found out that, you know, I, by that same time, by the time I was 30 or so, I was getting, I was like hooked on drugs and kind of a mess. And, um, you know, they weren't really interested. I kind of missed some opportunities back then. But I think I'm thankful because it, it really wouldn't have worked out very well. I would have not done well with any of it. Um, but I think now I realize that um, more than ever, one, Getting just getting here is is a dream come true. It's not easy. It's very hard. And there's millions of people that are is equally deserving that will never have the chance to just sell 20,000 records, which when you know, you know how it is. I mean, you you live in America's hat. I'm just making a Canada joke. Don't get mad. You know how it is in America down here. It's like, you know, you live in a house that's a hundred thousand dollars and we think we're poor because we need to live, you know, we're watching cribs and, and they're in million dollar homes. So, you know, uh, you don't, you see, you hear about these artists selling millions of records. You know how hard it is to sell 20,000 records today. Which, oh which is like God. a serious number still. Right, like I mean, most it's, people it's like so ninety nine. Yeah, I, I I still don't always do that. It's it's so hard. It's it's extremely hard. You know, it, it it takes. There's so many people that are deserving that have more talent, and and what I what I do know is that I, I've had the gumption, like I've always had, that I show up. You know, I, I realized at an early age, uh, and I learned really when I got sober, like, you know, it's not always the best that that are successful. It's, um, it's who shows up and does the work, you know, not the best actors or actresses, you know, actors. It's who moved to Los Angeles and pursued the work that get hired. You know, I, and so 
I always tell everyone, look, you know, this job is thankless, but if you really want it, it's there. You just have to go get in a van and drive around for no money for years and years and years. You know, you have to go do it. You know, I still have people will come up and go, well, I'm sorry, I've never heard of you before. And I go, well, that's, that's why I'm here. That's, that's, why, that's why I drove all this way. <laughs> so you could hear me. You know, I mean, uh, I didn't drive 12 hours for, you know, a, a meal in a hotel room and, 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 and a little bit of money. I, I drove here so you would leave and go, hey, that guy was pretty good. I, I liked his music or, you know, that's the job. And that's why in our genre, the most famous people generally are the ones that have been around the longest. Mm -hmm. You know? When we look at your life from the guy who said, I want to do that, I want to tour the world, I want to sell CDs, um, and a few years later, this is what you do. Like, you do tour the world, you sell CDs. Was there a moment where you thought, well, I've kind of not reached a goal, but this is the path that I had chosen, and this is where I want it to be? Yeah. Oh, no, Definitely most definitely and 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 probably again more it's probably been more reaffirming again this year and it's been really good you know um, there was a time when like noodling where we started in an hour yeah. ago uh, you know it was just oh I want to go play oh I cannot wait to go and go play Friday and turn my amp up loud and, and get everybody excited, you know, and there's going to be some cute chicks there and you know, it's going to be fun, man. I can't wait. Like, like it, none of it had to do with, um, I'm going to be famous. I've got to sell this many tickets. I've got to, we've got to, you know, I need this many followers on my had nothing to do with that. It was just like, Oh, I cannot wait to go play my friends and blah, blah, blah. And, and then it became a goal of like, okay, I'm going to do that. And when you, when I said, you know, maybe I second guess myself, I could second guess myself more now than maybe I did when I was younger, where I was like, oh, I'm just going to do that, you know, because once you finally, I finally got the chance to do this and, and some doors opened and it started to happen. And, and it, it, that's a whole other thing that's a whole other thing now you're on a, a ladder and now there's a business involved there's an agency there's a record label there's a a manager there's a you know all these other things start to take form and um you know they want you to make money they're they're in business for money right you know i mean sure they're in the music and they love the music and they're in the music business, but now you're in the music business. <laughs> it's not just, we're going to go play Friday and we'll make a couple bucks. And I, you know, and I, and I, it's so much fun. And now, you know, um, it becomes a, a thing where you're trying to work your way up. You know, you start to, uh, to make a little money and get some things going and selling records and you start to 
to get some success and then you're trying to maintain that success. And sometimes during maintaining that success, I might get the second guessing like, I don't know, man, maybe I'm just not, you know, maybe I was good on, on the other level. Like maybe I, I don't know if I, if I have what it takes because it, the music is not the most important thing anymore. Right. When you start to go down that path, it's like Bill Graham had this quote, my manager would always tell me, you know, it's not about the money, but it's about the money, <laughs> you know, like, isn't that great? I mean, it, it, it just is. And so, you know, you get chance to go out and tour and then you get booked into these rooms you've only heard about and, and then you only bring 50 people. And then the next time you bring 45 and then they don't book you again. And you're like, oh, crap. Like, you know, what are we going to like? And then you then you do something else and then you bring some more people out. And and now it's all about like, you know, hey, you got to get like you need to sell tickets. And, you know, when I got into the Royal Southern Brotherhood, that was, you know, that was when that was a big, successful rock band situation where it really elevated my career and my name and I was with people that were more famous than me and all of a sudden we were playing for much bigger numbers and audiences and bigger shows and, and um, it's a it's like a big thrust and and to try to maintain that thrust requires a staff of people right. So, you know, um, that's a whole other thing, man. And I, I had to start going like, so do you want to do this? Like, you have to dress up and kind of become a character, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and as much as I love to entertain and everything, as I've gotten older, like, that's not me. And, and, and again, the people that I like that I look up to, that's not who they are either. I mean, the guy that I told you I love, you know, Eddie Van Halen was running around with no t-shirt on, a pair of shorts and tennis shoes playing guitar, you know. But as this music and genre and things progress and, and getting people out, you you need a, sh a shtick, you know. And, and I don't know that I'm good at it. so. Those are things that I started to second guess myself. Like, I don't know that I can do these things, you know, but, but I'll tell you what. Uh, so that ladder that just always is like uh, the, that, that staff that you have, they want more, 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 more. You got to do more. You got to do more. You got to do better. You got to do more. And then this year hit and it just kind of hit me again. Like, God, you're so lucky to just even get to do what you do. And every time I've gotten to play any kind of a show this year, which is far and few between, it was fun. Fun, like it was fun 20 years ago, you know, like, right. like fun, like, oh my God, like, and there aren't shows. So like a friend owns a restaurant and would go, hey, all the musicians, you know, no one's on tour in our area in Texas. And uh, so on Thursdays, there's a patio where we're like do a jam if you want to come. Yes. I will come to the jam for no money and come play, please, because I haven't played all year. And 
that it, it made me realize that feeling again. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to do what I like to do. Like, like it just hit me all over again. Like, yeah, if the latter happens, it happens, but I'm done with all that shit. Excuse my French. Like, I'm just going to do my thing. And I, and I hope that everybody enjoys it because I turned 50 last week. Oh yeah. Happy belated like, birthday. Thank you. Yeah. It's, this is, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so long winded, um, but you're just hitting on all the right elements. It just really <laughs> hit me at the right time this time. Like, yeah, just, just if I, you know, we would go do these gigs the past 10 years and you play this one, you get on this one festival and they love you there. And you're like, Oh, I hope we can get on this festival. That's the one you got to get on that. You know, that's the big one. Oh man. Why can't we get on that festival? And you're getting all these other festivals and now there's no festivals. And I'm like, Oh my God, I wish we could just play in front of people. You know, uh, there's just that always constant trying to get you on this ladder of success. And this year made me realize, Oh, I hope we can just do what we've been doing. If we could just do what we've been doing, what a blessing that would be. If we could just get back to doing what we do, you know? Well, yeah, for um, sure, because it's crazy. I hope that makes sense. Now. No, it makes total sense. And and you're actually on the road right now starting a, a short leg of the tour. What is that like at this point? I, I, I think I believe you you did something like this not too long ago. A short tour. well yeah we we tried you know they're they're i guess you call it tours i mean this is like six shows over 10 days it's they're very short and and um and it's kind of weird again um i mean I'm, first of all i certainly am a believer that this is a this <laughs> illness is real right and it's no joke and and um I wear my mask, I wash my hands, I, you know, we do everything that we need to do. Uh, I was already a little bit of a germaphobe to begin with, so the world's just catching up with me, which is great. I was always, like, because I travel all over and I'm like, ugh, don't get too close, sick people, you know. Right. So um, this this has not been too hard for me, but um, it's been sometimes so joyful and other times like just really weird and sometimes like yeah we can't do that you know like not most of the time we have not playing inside at all you know it's some kind of a the majority of all the things are some kind of an outdoor socially distanced kind of a thing so you know the first time or two, it's it's weird because it's like, oh, okay. But the only thing that makes it, you know, better is the two months leading up to the first show, you know, you're playing in front of the computer in front of, you know, there's no one there, which is just weird to me <laughs> and bizarre. And we did it, but there's like, you're not playing for anybody. You know, there's no, you finish and it's, there's nothing. You have to go look at the computer and read comments to see, like, hey, you sound good. Hey, play this song. Like, 
so that's weird and it was short-lived for me because i was like man i can't do this it's not i'll get on there and goof around but it was just kind of odd so then getting to play in front of people was good but you know they're the crowds are small there um, there was a time there around september we did a little run in september where we played a handful of shows and and that was the best all year where it was starting to get this feeling like hey you know people are kind of used to the idea now of wearing a mask and they're okay with it and they're comfortable if they if they go out and wear a mask and use sanitizer they they you know shouldn't get sick and um because we i mean i haven't gotten sick and we haven't gotten sick and we haven't done anything where it was you know there was a report where a bunch of people got sick or so i kept thinking well we're okay well we're doing it right you know if you wear your mask and you stay back and this will be okay so september was pretty good and now it's you know with the election and then the spike so it's like really weird i mean you know i think we're playing this week but I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, call later today and said, like, yeah, we can't do tomorrow. Or, you know, we have, to, we have to cancel Thursday. I'm so used to that now. It's fine. Um, it's more and mostly about, um, you know, I have a, I had a seven-piece band in February, and I've got a three-piece band today. And I'm trying to keep these two guys working. I'm their full-time job. I'm their only full-time job. And um, I'm just trying to keep them working. I try to to get them some money. Trying to, um, we do other work. We do studio work. We do, um, and we found other ways to make some money. And so we're out trying to do some shows. People, sometimes, man, there's people there and they're not wearing their mask and they're out. And I just stay on stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I play. And I say hi, and then I just kind of go backstage or stay on the side and um, try, not make, try not to make a big deal out of it. I don't want to get in the middle of all that with people. Uh, if they don't want to wear their mask and they want to get sick, then, you know, it's on them. I mean, well, if it was in, only what them, I usually, it wouldn't be an issue, but it's I know, other people. It's, you know? it's, 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 it's that they're going to, yeah, they're going to go around. The biggest thing that I asked... You know, we had one show this weekend. It was going to be outside. I knew there would be more people at this than anything I've probably done all year. And they wanted me to come play. And they said, you know, you're worried that, you know. I said, well, I'm just going to stay. You know, I'll just stay away from the people. I, I've learned how to. I can do it. You know, it's no problem. And they said, uh, yeah, I mean, there could be a lot of people there. We don't know if they'll all wear masks. And I said, so... Are you going to be open anyway? Yeah. I said, so are you going to have something going on? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going on whether you're there or not. And I was like, well, you know, all right, then we'll just be there. Hmm. Like, I'm not bringing them out necessarily. I'm not. Right. That, that's the one thing it's kind of made me, you know, I, I'm not, I don't go on and try to get people to, to come out. Um, just kind of if they're doing something and there's something going on and they want me to play and it's going to be good for everybody i, I go play you know right. gosh we could count it could count it on our hands and toes you know what we did since march as a player what has this done to you 
I honestly think I've gotten better. Like all those things we talked about earlier, well, I've had a lot of time to practice this year, which I never have. Really enjoyed my time this year uh, at home with my family. And um, I mean, like, I've really enjoyed playing my instrument this year. I've practiced. I get up in the morning and practice and I go on and learn new chords and things. And, um, and so I feel like my plan has elevated this year. Like I feel even more confident. The other thing when you're always going, 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 it's like, you're, you're really good at the show. Like, Oh, I know how to do this show. Like I can, I got it down. I know how these songs go. I know, you know, feel very comfortable, but I'm not necessarily learning or do or writing songs or doing anything new because you're just trying to maintain doing a good show night after night after night. So it's my, my playing, I think is, is, is stronger, is better. And my mind is, is well off this year from getting kind of a break. Um, but I wonder, like, with all the years of touring that you've done, and it's been go, go, go for many, many years, and then all of a sudden things come to a stop, and you're, you're stuck in Europe trying to get home, right, at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And then you decide you're going to quarantine yourselves, but at the same time, <laughs> write songs and create a new album and make it available and ask for donations so that it would help pay for <laughs> the money that you lost. And then... If I'm not mistaken, for a little while you did like a podcast or an interview series with various musicians. So it just yeah. seemed like the first few months you were still go, go, go. Am I correct? Yeah, that? you know, that's true. I mean, it's it's hard. This year, is, it's been a real learning process for, I mean, for all of us, obviously. And, and again, like I said earlier, like... I, it's still so overwhelming. I, I didn't realize the online. It just, you know, I was forced online this year. Right. You know, um, because my inclination is to go down to the corner bar and set up and play or go get in the van and drive and go do a show. Like, that's just how my head works. You know, when we first, when that tour first canceled, I mean, I, uh, oh, I lost so much money. I mean, I bought all these flights and I always feel like I have this obligation, you know, to the musicians. They're going home with what would have been their, they're usually their biggest tour month, you know, where they get to go play like 30 shows and they make really good money for to being, you know, like the side musician to come home. They make like almost two months pay in one month and, and um, they're going home empty handed. And it was like, well, okay. I'll, I'll think of something. How can I help these guys? You know, we, we made a record and we made it not together at all. We made a, a full record and I forced myself to write 10 new songs and we made a record virtually. Like I played my parts and then put it in the Dropbox and the drummer put his parts in the Dropbox. And I didn't know we could do that. And we did it. And, um, and I gave it away. When I told the fans, if, if you can donate something, we're going to split this with the band and help pay for the flights. And we raised $20,000. So I was able wow. to give those guys each $5,000. You know, we just split it even. And they 
they were able to pay their bills and you know cover themselves. But that was just the first month, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then it and then it caught on, and all these musicians were out of work. So then I opened it up, and we raised another twenty six thousand dollars for twenty six musicians. I gave every we gave every one of them a thousand dollars. So, you know, early on it was like you thought, well, maybe this is just going to be short lived. But right now, everybody's hurting. So everybody was contributing and helping, and there was all this kind of stuff going on. And then I think by summer it was like, hey, this is not ending, and everybody's suffering. Yeah. So enough, at, enough asking people to give you money, because they need their money too. So that ended, and then the podcast thing was like, yeah, I was like, well, I always want to do some, some kind of thing like that, and um, I did that for a while, and and it was. And then it became, it was, that was for no money. I was just trying to keep busy and entertain the fans. And it became very hard to maintain two a week and get people lined up and get them to learn how to use Zoom. And, you know, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. It was, sure. it was a whole thing. So you're right that early on, I mean, I really tried to, partly because I thought, I don't know if we can maintain, how do we maintain this? And, and then it, you know, we just learned to adapt. And after a while it was like, Hey, expenses are way less when you stay home. And when you go on the road, that's expensive to go on the road and live on the road. And it's, it's really inexpensive to stay home. And my wife teaches, so she's still getting paid and, um, so I just started to slow down and started to do other things and practice and write songs and, uh, work in the studio. And I kind of wore out the social media thing. I was like, yeah, I've kind of had enough of that. So I just started to kind of, yeah, you know, take a break from it all. And then some shows started to open up and we started to play a little bit. I mean, my goal at this point would be to just, you know, if we could go back out and play next year, that would be great. Has your writing changed this year? Because of this experience, has it been easy to write new songs? And has you said that you've also been improving your playing. Has that affected your writing? Well, I'm always trying to... Writing to me is always kind of based on a a need for, like, a project, like, you know... um, Right. I don't always just sit and write songs. I just sit and noodle guitar. And then I, because writing songs can come easier for me than guitar playing. So, because I've just, like, that's something I've always kind of done. My, my mom wrote poetry. And I just can always, I'm not the best songwriter, but I can kind of, you know, get my feelings down in words, you know. So I need a project. So like that quarantine opportunity was like, oh, this is a good project. Like, um, you know, you have to write 10 new songs and record them and release it in 14 days. Let's go. And then like, I can do that. But if it was like, hey, why don't you write some songs today? Like, yeah, there's no, I don't have a reason to. Why am I, (laughs) why? So things don't just come to you? I need, yeah, I need like, you know, I need like some kind of a deadline or some kind of a, uh, um, 
I need something to work off of, like producing a record. Yeah, then it kind of comes to me. I pick up the guitar. I start to, you know, that was a different writing because I couldn't, I wasn't in the room with the band. You know, we weren't together. So playing maybe like blues music seemed a little, that, that record and recordings a little more rock and roll. Kind of did that on purpose. I didn't want to. It was supposed to be like a, just a little side project, you know, something, right. not a real album release, just something to give the fans, something to pay the bills, something to kind of do. So I kind of went out of my, I made out of purpose. I kind of went out of my comfort zone, and wrote a little more rocking stuff. You know. What did you learn from, from writing out of your comfort zone? Well, um, and, and not to, to contradict, I mean, you're right. I, I don't, I don't necessarily write every day. Like I do consider myself a songwriter, but I know like, like a, like a real songwriter, I assume they're, they're just writing songs all the time. And um, for me, I seem like I need a, I need some kind of a project in mind or some kind of a goal that, um, that I'm going to, kind of use it for and and one of my friends anders osborne who is a great songwriter who's based in Mm -hmm. new orleans you know he taught me he said you know just act like you have a project all the time (laughs) he goes just go like oh well that's going to be for my country album he goes um even if you never make it you know just um he goes just that'll kind of trick you into writing songs but um, but I do better when I have like a little bit of a deadline or a project that I'm working on. And I, I don't know if it was out of my comfort zone to write like rock songs. I think um, I think it was fun. It was um, it's something that I don't always do. But what I find is um, I can write for the project at hand better than just kind of willy-nilly, like, uh, hey, I wrote this song today. But if I have an idea, like, um, you know, I've been cast in a in a, in a play or a, 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 a movie, and this is the character you're going to portray, and then I think about, oh, okay, then I start to think about the songs, like, that way, kind of, uh, that the album has a story, and, and who is my character, and, and then I... Um, even even when they're my own records, you know, even when it's a very personal record, if it's about a particular time in my life, um, which I've done, you know, then I think about that me and that time and what who I was and, and uh, what I was surrounded by. So, and I don't I don't know that this is so uncommon, you know. I I, I can't imagine that it is. Uh, no, but once you decide to do that project whatever it might be your next recording project then does the the process is it easy to write it's easier yeah it's much easier for me once i kind of put that together and and you know when i'm doing when i'm specifically doing like my own record and i'm gonna go and there's no (laughs) there's no uh, pandemic or quarantine or there's just uh you know, um, hey, I'm gonna. I'm thinking about my next record, and let's say it's December now, and uh, in my head, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm just thinking of this 
maybe my next record would come out in January of 2022. I would start thinking ahead of that album and what do I want to do? What do I want to say? What kind of album do I want to make? What do and um and so then I'll start to write songs and I put them in a box and I think okay and I just start I start there and then over that year that box will change because I'm not really sure what I want to do or what I'm going to do and a lot of times it, it it becomes more evident in the writing like I'll go back and go oh, okay um oh you're kind of writing uh these kind of songs are okay. Like they're starting to be a theme and I start to piece together a story and then maybe, you know, three or four months out, I start to have a real idea of what I want to do. And then I'll really start writing some songs because it's, it's come together. So it always seems like it kind of takes that amount of time. So in this particular situation, with this quarantine blues album, I mean, there was certainly none of that time. And that's kind of what made it um, challenging and interesting and fun was, okay, you got two weeks. Can you write 10 songs and record them and finish them? And um, so there's like an immediacy to the, to the music that I think is interesting. Um, you know, I don't know that I'd ever, not that this is a super special record to the world, but for me it is like, I'm never going to be in that situation, that exact situation ever again. And that's the music that kind of came out of it. And maybe that's why I was more rocking was kind of like, there's a little angst and, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. in it, you know, that like we were this turmoil, like we're getting shipped off back home. We're all coming back broke what the hell is going on? What are we going to do? What is this? Like what, you know, there was all this emotion and uh, that probably created more rock and roll. Um, it seemed, gosh, like this, with that, with that script, the music and the songs just kind of came together pretty, pretty easy. You know, um, I think I mentioned earlier to you, you know, Lyle Lovett, who is a great songwriter in Texas, he one of his best quotes to me is, uh, no one wants to hear how great your life is. Like, hmm. no one's interested in the songs you're writing about how happy you are. <laughs> you know? And and yeah. I've written songs like that because that, I am. I'm happy and joyous. And, uh, and then I notice you don't get all of the audience, people are, you know, people want to hear music that's moody and moving and has other emotions in it. And um, I think that's what we tapped on this one was tapped into some, you know, some uh, ag aggression and angst, some um, things that aren't normally there in my everyday life, being sober and clean and thankful and grateful. <laughs> But maybe people don't want to hear about that all the time, you know. <laughs> so a couple of things. One, one is that so the um, that pandemic blues album just got listed as one of the top twenty blues albums of the year in in a magazine. That's nice. So that must be yeah. quite rewarding. 
that's nice to know that I didn't really, I didn't consider I was really putting an album out. It was just kind of like a project in the mm-hmm. spur of the moment. We didn't really get behind it and promote it and do something, you know, like we normally would. And to have it still get such a good response just from the fan base is super awesome. You know. The other thing that you've alluded to a couple of times, and we've talked about this in the past, is about um, your past addiction and yeah. your sobriety. So I wonder, and I don't. I hope you don't mind me asking, but you all. talked about being in the 30s and not being responsible enough or to have it together enough that you, you let some opportunities pass by. Sure. Can I ask you what, what was it that made you realize that you need to change your life? Oh man, um, it was like was there a moment? Well, there was definitely a moment, but it was just the culmination of um, so many things. You know, um, I mean, I was really it's it's hard to believe maybe now, but I was really like as bad as you can get, like as bad as you see in a in a TV show or a movie. Like I had you know abandoned children and family and and didn't own a car and was homeless and out on the streets and you know begging on the corner and stealing and um even if that was you know that was maybe for like a it was just bad for the better part of a month and then it but it never elevated much higher than that um and then i got an offer to go from being um basically you know a a drifter to move into texas and working for fender guitars through a a long 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 term friend of mine that was a a fender rep that i had known since i was a teenager and of course they didn't know i was on drugs and um and i thought this is my chance i can get off the streets i can get family back this is going to be good and it paid like you know nothing rich but maybe forty thousand dollars a year and i was literally living on the streets <laughs> so i thought oh this is it this is going to solve my problems i'll be able to to send money to my family and be responsible but then i'll also have plenty of money to party and be wild and uh and I went the other way. I mean, within within a year, there was like six months of like kind of being homeless. And then about five months of like, all of a sudden I was making all this money and I somehow just ended up within an apartment in Dallas and I had this money and started doing this job and I kind of got myself together for a few months, and um, which I could kind of always do. And then I started you know, going down that road again, hardcore. And, uh, and I had plenty of money to buy drugs. And, um, and then there was too much drugs. Like it was like, I always thought I just never had enough. And then it was too much. I, I would stay in a hotel room for seven days and not come out. And, and there would still be drugs left. Like there was so much couldn't do it all I'd make myself sick and um, there's a saying in one of the recovery programs that one is too many and a thousand is never enough um, and, and I think I finally 
Well, one, I met my wife. I met a woman that really cared for me, and she could tell, like, something was wrong, like, with me, that I seemed to feel bad about what I was doing, but I didn't seem to be able to stop doing it. And she goes, I think there's something wrong with you. And I don't think I'd ever considered that. I just thought, well, I must be a bad person. Um, and I think it was just the culmination of all those experiences. And, I, you know, I, I tried to get sober, and then I had one more run at it. And uh, I went and stayed out for seven or eight days. And at the end of that, I realized, like, yeah, there's something wrong. One is too many. I felt like there's never enough. And once I start, I can't stop. And my intention was never, my intention is never to, uh, hey, I'm going to go lose my job this weekend and uh, get kicked out of the house and not be able to see my kids and spend all my money and, you know, get locked up or like, that's not the intention. My intention is, hey, let's go have a beer after work and have fun like normal people. Except that it doesn't stop once it starts. Like it just it goes until I'm physically stopped. And it that last time something clicked. Uh, what she told me and what I learned in the meeting, and the experience I had the past year, and I was like, yeah, there's something wrong. I have to go back to that meeting. There's something wrong with me. Got scared of myself. Um, quite literally. Like, I'm afraid if I don't go back now, my mind's going to trick me again. Like, I think I'm crazy. And, and I, I was. I am still to some degree, you know. But you can't be crazy if you know that you're crazy. You know, right. usually people that have mental illness don't realize they're mentally ill. And um, that realization was it. And I went straight back to a recovery group and I, and I stayed you know, there for 17 years, uh, quite willing to think that, well, I'll never play music again. I can't go to a bar anymore. I can't be around this anymore, but I'll have to because um, it's either that or or death, you know. Um, right. I, wish I, I wish I could sell, if I could sell that experience to people, if I could get people to understand what I'm telling you, that have the same affliction, oh, I would be like a millionaire. <laughs> I would be so rich. <laughs> we could sell it and bottle it. But um, everybody has to have that experience, and and most don't because the mental illness is so bad, they don't ever quite get that realization, you know? Yeah. I wonder, okay, so... There's something about you that's very honest and upfront. You're willing to talk about anything. And I, th I think you, you with, with your blog, you also reveal a lot about yourself. And I presume with your songs as well. Mm -hmm. um, that honesty, which I think is part of who you are now. I'm not sure if that honesty was there during your addiction. Oh, no. No. So how do you, how does that, how do you become this honest person? Is that just part of the, the process? To be able to, I mean, not only the honesty, which is, I think, a huge part of who you are, but, you know, the other thing I was going to mention is I've done a few interviews with other people, and your name has come up, and you're so well-respected. Well, that's, 
Wonderful. And then that, yeah, I mean, but I mean, I, and that doesn't surprise me, but in the last couple of months, I think your name has come up two or three times. And every time the person has mentioned or the people who have mentioned you have spoken about you with a great deal of respect and, um, well, good. Admiration. I'm, I'm getting my money's worth. That's good. Um, I've been paying these people for years. So that's another. <laughs> well, it's working. <laughs> no, that's very but, nice. That means a lot for sure. But does I, that, does that honesty, was it difficult to get to that point of being a more honest person within yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, it's what I would have always wanted to be. Of course, I think re- religion aside, I think everyone has a version of themselves that they would like to be. And um, they long to be, but maybe they don't ever get there or maybe they're working on, you know, they're they're trying Um but I think for me, the type of dishonesty that was going on was um, from, you know, very young and from who knows what, maybe traumatic. Who, who knows where that comes from? But that that kind of dishonesty is not. I don't. I don't believe is normal. Most folks don't deal with it. And um, so I always tell people, you know, before I ever used drugs or alcohol, I was a thief. I was a liar, a cheat. I was extremely dishonest. I believed all of my dishonesty. And I would say or do whatever I could to get what I wanted or what I pleased, you know, as long as it worked for me. Like, I have no is- had no issue with being dishonest at all. Um, and in fact, I, I don't even know if I thought it was dishonest. I think maybe I thought um, that was my truth, you know. Like that's the that that kind of thinking is is uh, so ill. And uh, when someone is that way, I don't I don't think they even realize they are, you know. Um, I don't think they're even considerate. So when I got sober clean and sober um i mean i was not to be trusted before that it wasn't you know of course once you put the drugs and the alcohol in well then it, it severely exacerbated that behavior so i i might have been somewhat trusted through life until you know the like the last three years where now you're you're dealing with drugs and addiction and um and then it's you know, you're really dishonest. Like people won't trust you in their house. They don't want you to be around there. They take their pocketbook or their purse, you know, and, and hold on to it. And um, so the first thing getting that, getting clean and sober is, is um, you know, the first thing you're going to learn to do is to be like cash register honest. Because you cannot be dishonest anymore you can't do anything uh, that will put you in a corner where uh, the only way out is to drink or use drugs again so if i were to lie or cheat or steal if i stole money from you and you and you you confronted me and it's i'm putting myself in that corner where i either have to tell you i stole from you or i'm going to lie about it and if i lie then i'm going to 
believe the lie again, and I'll go drink or use again. So really, I learned like the addiction. It, it forces you. If you want to stay clean and sober, you have to be honest, even against your own will. It's kind of like a child, you know, like you go, look, if you don't do this, if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to spank you. And the child goes, well, okay, the only reason I'm not, the only reason I'm going to do the right thing is so you won't hit me. Not because they think the right thing is the right thing to do. <laughs> like, but I don't want this consequence. And it's exactly that. It's like you start over, you know, and so you start with cash register honesty. And you were like, okay, you know, hey, look, I didn't steal anything today. And everyone goes, oh, that's that's great. And we never steal, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I guess we're proud of you. That's good, you know. And then you start to pay your bills on time and start to to learn this process of honesty. And um, most people that I've learned that I've that I know that go through this process that have been through this process before me after me they're the same way generally if you're gonna stay clean and sober this long that honesty prevails it's the only thing that you have to uh it's like um it matters so much so for me um it just kind of came natural in fact you know songwriting immediately sober was like oh wow i have something to write about like something like serious to write about before it was just hey let's party and girls are good looking and you know mm -hmm. just dumb stuff and now it was like oh i started to write you know i wrote a song called slow it down which is a pretty good song but it was like a you know like a blues rock song about you know about addiction you know and I was started to write songs about addiction and recovery. And then people started to notice like, Hey, that was a pretty good song. Like, you know, you're sharing some of your self in your music. And that seemed to really, you know, get people's attention. And I started to realize like, Oh yeah, well, that's what I like about all these other musicians or songwriters is when they're, they're like sharing part of their story, you know, they're, they're opening up. So that process has just been part of my recovery process. I've never been more open than I am right now. Because even if I was able to write those songs or to be that honest, I would still be maybe, it, it's been a long road. It's like uh, I get on stage and I want to just be open in front of you and let it all lose and I still kind of now I see all of the warts but hear all the bad notes oh that doesn't sound good you know I now I start to become very obsessive compulsive with all of the but where I'm at right now uh that's been kind of lifted as well like so I'm very open it's a great place it's a great way to live I can imagine I have nothing to hide I'm not uh, embarrassed or ashamed or, um, you know, I just kind of let it all hang out. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's a confidence in that. It's taken until I was 50 <laughs> to finally get. But you said that the, you were 
you were almost willing, you would be willing to give up music for this. I mean, there was yeah, a chance. Yeah, back, back then, it, I mean, I had to kind of, of course, I wasn't really playing music anyway at all. Um, but one of the last things in my head was like, uh, and they're not ever going to let you play music. And up till then, I only played music in a bar. I thought, well, they're not going to let you go to a bar. I don't know who I thought they were. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, well, okay, maybe I'll get to play in the church or I'll get to, but, you know, it's not working. But within a year, um, I, I got to play again um, at, a, at a bar. And all of these people from this recovery group who were all so supportive of me, they, they came to the bar and they all set up uh, in front of me and sat and watched me play and kind of blocked the bar. Um, so that, you know, I just focused on the music. Like they were so supportive and they started to come out like all the time. And they taught me, you know, that um, when I'm spiritually correct and I'm there to do um, work, I can go anywhere, right. you know. Um, I can go anywhere and do anything if I'm there for the right reason. How long did it take for you to feel comfortable in your own skin again? Like this year. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's been gradual, I'm sure, right? Yeah. I remember that like like a, a year and a half of being sober and getting to play again. And, oh, my gosh. Everything sounded terrible. I, mean, I wasn't drunk anymore. I could tell. I, I always had it in me that I could be good and I had some physical talent, but I could hear like, oh man, that doesn't sound good. And then the band doesn't sound good and, and they're not playing it right. And I'm not playing it right. I would like pitch a fit on the stage in front of people because, you know, things were not what I, what I wanted them to be or been a long process you know to get this even in the royal southern brotherhood that's one of the last things i remember like i was so not ready to be in that band at all like i didn't understand it i was still learning i was going seriously through the blues world and trying to learn and was like man i don't get this what are we doing like why are do people like this and, but there was such an energy on stage with that band. And um, I was like afraid of it or, or not comfortable with things not being, with things being so open and live, you know. If I could be in that band all over again now, oh man, I could really have, I would have gone 110%. But you also said that it was a bigger machine and you weren't really happy with that that machine sure i mean definitely definitely i mean that's that's definitely something i've just i'm not very good at following direction at all ever and that's part of my problem <laughs> i'm sure but so when when you said okay i'm not i don't like this the size of this thing this machine did that change your perspective your own career or how you would go about dealing with your own career yeah I think partly I'm, I'm, 
I'm selfish, and and uh, I probably thought, well, why aren't they just? Why is everybody excited about this just being me? Why does it have to be all of us? Like, why do I have to share this? I'm sure that went through my head. I'm sure it went through Devin's head too. I mean, we were just you know younger dudes, and, and uh, you know, like, why do we have to? I just never been in a band situation like that before. I'm sure that was part of it. Um, but I think another part of it was just, yeah, I didn't like that. I kind of kept being told like, I need to do this, you have to do this, you need to do that. You need to dress this way, you need to do this. Well, the things that probably are exactly what you're supposed to do when you're gonna be in a famous rock and roll band or you know right i just hated it i was like oh wow I, I, <laughs> this is really stupid if you go look at the very first pictures from the first album of the royal southern brotherhood everybody's wearing black except mike zito he's wearing a plaid cowboy shirt <laughs> on purpose uh because I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. They're like, look, man, we're going to all wear black. We're going to do this. I was like, no, no I'm not going to do that. And and I remember, I think it was Devin or someone was like, what are you doing, man? I thought we were doing this. And I was like, no, it's fine. This looks good. Just, that's me. And that, even though it seems minute, but, you know, I was probably like that at every twist and turn. Right in that band I feel sorry for this guy <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing you in Chicago with that band and, and I think it was pretty early on in the the band's formation I can't remember the the name of the bar that I saw you in but it was a pretty amazing show uh, it was a great band so. um, you did a tribute to Chuck Berry I did and you know one of the things when I was growing up which was a long time ago um you would hear yeah. Chuck Berry at all the dances and places, but you don't hear Chuck Berry, or at least I don't hear Chuck Berry anymore that much. Right. How, what was the thought process? Was it just because you grew up with his music? Because as a guitar player, the, everybody played Johnny B. Good. Tell me about. Sure. And also the St. Louis well, connection. Right. You know, it's it's all of those things above, and then, and then also just, you know, growing up in St. Louis and being born in 1970, and you're interested in playing guitar, and I work at a neighborhood guitar store in the city. I mean, Chuck Berry's still alive and well and rocking. I was in high school. They were doing um, the, the the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll at the Fox Theater right. in St. Louis, and I was in high school. That was all over the news, you know, that Eric Clapton and and Jeff Beck, Keith Richards, and all these people were going to be there. And, um, I mean, he came in the music store that I worked at. His son, who played in the band with him in the 90s, came in the music store, who I'm still, you know, good friends with and close with. And it was like a, hey, man, if you're going to go play any of these gigs, you're going to have to learn how to play these licks and songs 
all those double stops on the guitar, all that, like they're necessary. And if you think they're necessary everywhere, they're mandatory <laughs> in St. Louis. <laughs> like it, it's, uh, you can't, and I was like probably on the last, I was probably in the last um, group of people that like, yeah, you got to know how to do this in St. Louis because then the kind of the nineties rock stuff took over and the music scene started to change in St. Louis and maybe they didn't play that music, but I came in playing in um, cover bands when I was 18 and 19 with older people. And um, you had to to know all that shit. You just did. And so uh, I learned it all. And I've just, it's, it's to this day, it's like uh, Chuck Berry and Van Halen are like, those are the go-to licks if I'm playing guitar or jamming or doing whatever. It's kind of like, that's just what I know that's in the back of my head all the time. And um, so that was, you know, that's what it means to me. And then I think the other part of it was I had had this idea for quite a while and then he passed. And um, and then I wanted, you know, I was like, we should really do this record. And um, the record label said, no, no, let's, you know, let's wait. And then he put out his last record, his family put out his last record. So we kind of just waited a little longer. And then I contacted his family. And I said, look, this is what I want to do. You know, um, I just love that music. Now, you do hear that music down here on the Gulf Coast still. Okay. Down south. And um older rock and roll, like fifties rock and roll where I live is called Swamp Pop. Um that's anything like uh, Chubby Checker, Little Richard, um, Chuck Berry. That's swamp pop music. And it's still very popular. In in fact, I mean with, with young people, like you could go to uh, you know, you could go to a bar and they'll, it's crazy. They'll play like uh, hip hop or um, dance music and then like Cajun music mm-hmm. and then Chubby Checker. And the kids are all dancing to all of it. It's crazy. Um, I presume when you approached other guitar players to play on this album, it was probably not a hard sell. No, I got. Just about everybody that I, I asked, you know, there was a couple of people that had record label issues that this, you know, weren't able to, to commit. But pretty much um, I had more people than I had songs and room on the album. We could have done it a double album. Um, we could have done, uh, we could do a volume two. Like it was, you know, everyone was excited and interested. And I actually got, friends like hey man you know can I play on this record I heard you're making this record a couple of things where I was like I felt bad <laughs> like I couldn't and I'm sorry I don't have any room we were we're struggling to make it all fit on one album so uh but leaving a long leeway I, I you know I say it took about nine months to completely put the whole thing together you know, you, if you're going to get a Joe Bonamassa to play on the record you gotta um 
you've got to give them time. Right. To um, here's the song, and Joe, you got six months. Whenever you get a second, you know, it's on your time. So uh, that that definitely helps. So the final thing I want to ask you, and for anybody who noticed that the sound quality or sound changed, this interview is actually taking place over almost like a two week period. The first part taking place while you were on the road and we had some connection problems so we followed up two weeks later um but my final question is you also created your own label what was the thinking behind yeah. that well um i built a recording studio behind my house with my wife and my partner uh guy hale who is uh based in the united kingdom we've been friends since the royal southern brotherhood and um just a great, wonderful person, and he's a great songwriter. And um, we had this building, and so we built this recording studio. And um, we started to, you know, we made first class life out there. We started to produce records out there. I started to to be able to make my own music, and it was like, you know, competition worthy recording. So we had good stuff and good, because you know, I've been producing a lot. And my partner guy come about a year later and he goes, I'm retiring. He's a businessman. And, uh, you know, we did the studio. What, what are we doing next? What's the next project? I'm, I'm ready to get into something. I said, well, the only thing I can think of is we do a record label, you know, but it should be small and just help, you know, very beginning artists, you know, something simple, but uh, my partner's never done anything simple or, or easy in his life he's a you know he's own multi-million dollar businesses and he's a go-getter so within the first three months we were buying the albert castilla masterpiece album from earth records to put out and that was like the game changer and then we just got thrust into it it was like okay so i guess we're doing this i thought i envisioned just a little project on the side and uh, now it's it's 100% all uh, we do. <laughs> like, uh, and what have you learned from thing. that? Like, as a musician who's always, well, you've put out albums on your own before, have you not? But Yeah, but not like this. Okay. You know? um, so what? Well, you know, I, I've learned a lot producing over the years. On the other end, working with Roof Records, right. you know, on like deadline, deadlines and, and all this. So I, I was able to bring all that in. And I, I mean, golly, what have I learned? So much i mean we've made lots of mistakes you know we got really lucky on some things and then we realized they weren't luck it was timing and how we time things and, and you know um making sure there's plenty of lead time into an album and it's not rushed out um and you know um some things work and some things don't you know right uh, and with all this digital stuff and all of the YouTube and all the fame and fortune to be found on, um, I don't know about fortune, let's say fame, to be found on uh, YouTube and, and streaming and, uh, you know, the viral world of like, all of a sudden you're getting all these views, all this, uh, that m most of that does not equate, equate to hardly any album sales at all. Right that album sales are still based on touring and 
get in getting in front of people. Absolutely in, in like the blues roots genre. Um, you know, we have some artists that have done really well online, but until they went out and got on the road, that's when they sold records, you know, and that's what sells records. You got to build a fan base. And um, I'm lucky enough, like with Quarantine Blues, to put that album out and to see it do well because I've been on the road for almost 20 years. So um, it's worked, you know, touring works. So hopefully this will all change in the next year and we'll kind of get back at it. And I think um, our label is doing well, but I think it'll do really well once we can get back out on the road and promote the artists. You know, it's, it's, it's been challenging and it's quite freeing. Of course, I can do anything I want at this point, mm-hmm. um, but I can do anything I want. And if anything doesn't work, it's, it's all on me. Like, um, but I told you I'm, I'm 50 now and I've got this, I don't want to say I don't care attitude, but it's like I'm very open about it. So I'm just going to do what I like to do and not worry so much like is this the next most successful thing I can do, but is this the next thing I want to do? And I think the fans that are really fans, they'll appreciate it or like it. Right. Mike, thanks so much for doing this and taking all this time with me. I, I always enjoy talking to you, and I really appreciate you doing this. Well, I enjoy talking to you, for sure. Um, all the best to you, and I look forward to hearing what's to come around, both from your label and from your music. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Hopefully, hopefully I'll see you in person one of these days. Yes. Yes.